so many young people, uh, so many young babies and children uh, that we uh, hear. It's a blessing to our church, Lord willing. We're planning a parenting uh, conference, class, something like that, uh, coming up in May. There will be more details about that right after Mother's Day. It will be a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday evening. I would just encourage you to be praying for that. Uh, as uh, we've got a visitor coming to, to minister to us in that way, uh, just to equip and help uh, help us to glorify God uh, in our families uh, to encourage you. Well, I uh, just want to make a mention uh, this morning uh, about Mary's mother. I know many of you have asked and made a statement of that, and uh, just thankful for Mike and I filling in for us last week. She is making some progress, but... Uh, still has quite a bit of work ahead of her uh, as far as walking. So just continue to pray for her. She had a stroke, for those of you who don't know, about a, uh, two weeks ago, wasn't it, Mary? Something like that. Uh, so um, we were down last week uh, down in Tennessee uh, to just uh, try to minister to her. It's also good to have Miss Jan with us this morning. And uh, we've been praying for her and you, and it's her birthday today. And... Uh, 92. Is that correct? Well, praise the Lord. Happy birthday. <laughs> As a guy standing up front, it's kind of like you're treading on thin ice, isn't it? <laughs> Should I say, but God is faithful, and we're so thankful to see you here, and, and uh, just uh, thankful to have your family with us this morning. I want to encourage you, uh, church, to join us on Wednesday night at 7 uh, if you believe prayer is important, and I hope you do, if if you consider it a fruitful activity, in fact, a powerful uh, activity that God has given to us, if you think of prayer as being essential to your own sanctification and the activity of this church, uh, then I just want to encourage you to make it a matter of importance to join us on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock as we pray together. Uh, we can do a lot after we pray, but there's not much we can accomplish before we pray. Uh, and so we should be gathering together to do that uh, quite often. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of John this morning. Gospel of John. Chapter 15. <clears throat> John 15, and uh, you can follow along as I read verses 8 through 17. My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. Isn't that a beautiful, uh, just, you don't expect that, do you? You are my friends from Jesus, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, 
So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Well, may God bless the reading of his word. The last time we were together, we looked at the beginning of this, that last I am statement in, uh, in that analogy of a vine and, and branches of bearing fruit and, and all that to remind us that it is God's will that you be fruitful. You live a fruitful, productive life. Not only is it God's will for you, it is God's activity so that you bear more fruit and better fruit. That's what God is doing in your life. Now, you may wonder how all that plays out and whatever particular providence is going on or circumstance that you're in, but Jesus wants us to understand that God is glorified in us bearing fruit. I think over the past few years, it's become clear to me, at least um, I I think so, and I'm a little slow. Maybe you, you were already there a long time ago, but... Part of our aim, our aim, whether it's parenting or discipleship, being in the church, residents coming to the ministry center, is that everyone live a fruitful and productive life according to God's giftedness for his glory. That you would live your life fruitful, productive, according to God's grace and gift that he has given to you in a way that glorifies him. I think that's what Jesus is telling us here. Uh, There is this this activity which God is doing in us and through us, being connected to Christ or through Christ so that you and I might have that kind of life. That blessing of fruit bearing, if I could call it that, is refreshing. Not only does it glorify God, but it is refreshing to others around us. And I think that's the turn that Jesus is making in our text this morning. As he changes the language from the vine to abiding in love. That love which is experienced, that blessing of being loved by God, flowing out, refreshing others as well as our own selves as we obey his commandments. We notice that in verse number 9. Look at it with me. As Jesus assures his disciples of his love... And commands them to abide in it. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now, when we were children, many of us, I don't know, some of us uh, may not have been, but we were taught a little children's song in vacation Bible school, wasn't we, or Sunday school, and that is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. How many of you are familiar with that? You could just break out now. We'll just break out in impromptu singing. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Uh, such a statement has been, and I think is currently, a, a very sentimental in the culture we live in. Especially since our culture, uh, as view of love is, is wrapped up in fascination and self-centeredness. That's, that's just basically how we, we are hardwired in many ways. So it should be no wonder when we speak of the love of God, at least in Christian circles, we tend to reflect or mirror a a greeting card or something that is is shallow or formless. It has very little substance. It it may offer and provide a little bit of comfort, but it, it equates to us as something of good wishes for someone else when we speak of God loves you or God loves me or God loves us and 
And if we're honest, in that, that telling and sharing of that, we're hardly captured by it as we ought to be. For some, it is a matter of indifference when we speak about the love of God, due primarily to God's love is foreign to us in our sinful condition. Everything we love apart from Christ or outside of Christ by nature is opposite of Christ or opposite of him and his love. And so, so it's that blindness, the hardness of the heart that is indifference to the love of God or at least the message of God's love. Others find God's love hard to grapple with because of guilt or shame of their own sin and their misunderstanding of the gospel or their, their projection of someone else's abuse or, or hardships that they've experienced from others. God must be like my, my dad or my mom or my uncle or this person or that person. And so we, we, we have a hard time understanding, being amazed by God's love because of these sorts of things. And yet, Jesus here, uh, turning to his disciples, seeks to assure us of God's love, uh, his love for them, his own love for them, not just the Father's, but his love for them. As the Father's loved me, so have I loved you. It's beautiful to see that. There's no break in God's love, is there? He, he loves the Son, and through the Son, uh, the disciples experience that self or that same kind of love. And it's remarkable for the, for the very reason that, that all the experience of God's love in its fullest expression is found through Jesus Christ. Now we can say that God's love is felt by all humanity in one way. His goodness or his grace, his general grace. God has shown his kindness to human Humanity by the very experiences of life. We, we know what it's like to, to feel the warm embrace of a loved one or, or to see our own children and take joy in that. We know what it's like to enjoy a good meal and all the goodness that we experience in this life. And that is God's gift to us. But if you really come to what the Bible teaches about the love of God, its clearest and most concentrated, most powerful display is found in Jesus Christ. Now, we might rejoice in the many gifts God gives us, and in this area, and, and, and all of us have experienced those gifts, we should give glory to God. It is right for God's creation to give praise to God and thank God for his good gifts. Amen? That's a right, appropriate response. But none of those gifts compare to the glory of Jesus Christ. None of those show the depth and of God's love like that of God sending his son into the world to die for sinners. And we've seen that in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Or Romans 5.8, God showed his love or displayed or declared his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that is that... Declaration that as Christ goes to the cross, bearing his cross, is crucified at the hands of sinful men, that is a declaration, a display, an act of God's love for us. And not something that we've earned, or not something that, that even in our own rebellion against God wanted to some degree. Would you agree with that? 
And yet God, out of his love for us, displays it so wonderfully, powerfully through the decisive act of crucifying his only begotten son. God's love is not idle words. It's not an idle thought or a sentimental thought that is that is to be spoken, although we speak the gospel message, but it is a message of a, of a decisive act of God, a proof of love and action. God motivated by his love for us, giving us the assurance of that display in Christ Jesus. How do we know God's love? How can you fathom it? How can you grasp it or grapple with it? Well, you can... You can do all those things only in and through Jesus Christ. That is where we're to turn and find that kind of comfort. And just to remind you, dear Christian, as we consider this, that God's motivation of love does not diminish over time, but rather it expands as we grow to come to know the depth and the width and the breadth and the height of the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You recall Paul's words to the Roman church experiencing suffering and who he reminds them, tells them clearly, you will suffer in Christ. You will share in his suffering. Then he goes further to tell them at the end of chapter number eight, I am convinced. That is, I I understand this. I know this is something that is sure, something that he has experienced. This is his own rock bed conviction that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grand conclusion to a host of difficulties we face is predicated what he says earlier in that passage in Romans chapter 8. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And what's the answer to that, church? It's one of those questions that you don't need to answer. Uh, The answer is clear, isn't it? If God is for you and there's no one equal to God, then it doesn't matter if the whole world is against you. And we'll see more of that next week when you look at the remainder of chapter number 15. Uh, And no one. And he goes on to tell the Christian, tells you and I this morning, that he who did not spare his own son but delivered him Over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He's using this argument, if he displayed it so magnificently, so so gloriously, so powerfully, in such a great way, for such a great need that we had in our salvation, our greatest need, how will he not take care of all the other things that's going on in our life? That's why he can conclude that chapter, that nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is our comfort, isn't it? And as we gather together and we consider this uh, great statement of Jesus that, that the Father has loved him and he has loved you. And you know the implications of that. Will cancer separate you from the love of God? Well, the answer is no. What about a stroke? What about sorrow or difficulties of all kinds? Well, no, none of these things will separate us from the love of God. And, and, and related to what he's saying here in John 15, as he, as he changes what it seems a different subject, but it's really the same thing, he is bringing out that the, 
that the abiding in him, the dwelling in him, the fellowship which is lying his word to abide in you and you in his word and, and that praying, that communion that we have with Christ is, is a fellowship that is described by mutual love and that which we receive from him. He loved them. He loves us. And so he tells them at the end of verse number 9, abide in my love. We have saw that already, haven't we? Abide means to dwell, live in, take hold of, to remain with. And Calvin notes it this way. He means that we should continually enjoy that love which he once loved us. Continue to dwell in the love of God. Calvin goes on and says, And therefore we ought not, or we ought to take care not to deprive ourselves of it. Abide in his love. And Calvin says, be careful not to deprive yourselves of it. And how do we deprive ourselves of it? Is to reject it. Dismiss it. Devalue it. Think of it as a small thing to hear of the gospel and the, the message to come to him and to be saved and forgiven and to just completely reject it. We reject God's love when we reject Christ, God's his declaration of love. But then he goes further, not only as he says this, this love of the Father and love of the Son and warning us or showing us how we might know the love of God, assuring them of the love of God. He tells them to abide in my love, as we said. But how do we abide in the love of God? Notice with me verse number 12. We'll come back to the other verses. I know that seems kind of odd. You just skipped a whole bunch, didn't you? Well, we'll, we'll come back to those, Lord willing. Notice this. Well, verse number 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. So we abide in his love by keeping his commandments. Verse number 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. We abide in the love of God as we walk in obedience to God. And that obedience that he points out here is not what sometimes religion has been seen or, or experienced. That is this isolationist, just me and Jesus. And that's how I know the love of God. And that's how I dwell and abide in the love of God. All I need is me and Jesus. Well, there's something good about that. There's a hymn we often sing as a congregation, which I have no idea why. I know it's a catchy hymn, and I'll give you the name of it, and somebody will pick it tonight for just in spite of me. But think about it. All alone with Christ my Lord, I come to the garden. Why would you sing that as a congregation? And, and, and together, you're, you're not alone. You're here with the body of Christ. You're together. Now sing that in your car. Don't sing it. Never. That's just my own pet peeve. <laughs> While it is good and it is helpful in motivating worship and, and we need those times of solitude with the Lord, abiding in his love is... It's expansive. It's, in, it's, it's, it's pointing towards others. That's what he says. It's obedience, but, but it's an obedience to love one another. That's my commandment. Just as the Father's love towards the Son is given to the disciples, channeled through the Son to his followers, so the experience of Jesus' followers is flowing out towards one another. That abiding, understanding, living in the love of God is becoming a refreshing, uh, refreshing and nourishment for one another. 
Jesus already had told us earlier on in John chapter number 13 that the mark of discipleship would be that they loved one another. That's how people will know you're my disciple, because of the love you have for one another. And so we've already seen this and and telling us that the mark, the norm of a Christian community, the norm of a believer uh, is that fellowship of this love that's being displayed here by Jesus. This experience of love, the love of God in your own life, but not just the experience of that, but the giving, the the caring, the, the, the loving others. Sadly, that's not always the case, is it? You think of the great pain and division and the selfishness that plagues the church oftentimes in the world we live in. Fractures and splits which often dismantle and harm what once was thriving communities and witnesses to the gospel in their their area and and powerful works that God was doing in their midst and and all to come to a place where where one split, one fracture, one, one thing after another until it is just devastated Uh, and I'm sure that you probably in your minds either live through something like that or are familiar with those stories and and accounts as as churches bear the mark of the same thing that was going on in Corinth wasn't it where they were divided by favorite preachers and spiritual gifts and economic class and immorality and a host of other things which was going on at the church of Corinth. Founded by Paul, he spent months and months there ministering to them to become a place where they were not displaying the the basic mark of being a community of fellowship, and that is love for one another. And so in the midst of that that letter, and and you're familiar with it, so no need to turn there, in the midst of that letter on spiritual gifts and fruitfulness and youthfulness, usefulness to the kingdom of God he says here's chapter number 13 because without this reality you're not going to get anything done and you'll be no good for anyone and that is love all of the giftedness all of the giving all of the work all of those things are nothing without that great display of love for one another experience of love and the command of love And isn't it so that in the absence of love, we walk in a distorted view of God's love for us? In the absence of love for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, for others, we we are not understanding, not living uh, true to or, or distorting in some way the love of God. As we walk in indifference and selfishness. We are no longer abiding and rejoicing in his love for us as we ought to. In fact, we, we tend to, in moments like that, turn grace into something that we deserve. Of course he loves me. I'm lovely. You wouldn't say that out loud. But what I'm saying is Jesus is saying here that if you're abiding in me, how do you know that you're abiding in me? Well, the outflow of that abiding will be your love for one another. If there's something wrong with the outflow, then there's something wrong with the beginning of it. And so what does that look like? Jesus gives two characteristics. First, he says love is sacrificial, and then he says love is seeking or inviting. Notice with me verse 13 and 14. 
this is my commandment, verse 12, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Well, Jesus is speaking of his own relationship to us as he's calling us friends. He lays down his life for us. And praise God, that is, that is like an understatement, isn't it? Laying down his life for us. Giving of himself. Preferring our good over his own safety in the moment. Uh, he is, is sacrificing himself for our life, for our well-being. Uh, and he's revealing the Father to us. And we rejoice in that to be sure and in this, and I know it's awkward, but in this, he's saying, this is, you want to know what love looks like, loving one another. Well, it's sacrificial. It's sacrificial. No one has any greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Now, you don't give your life to save anyone. You'll never do that. Only Jesus can do that. Only his death, only his giving can bring that restoration, salvation, forgiveness of sin, and all that. But we do care and minister to one another. We give of ourselves to care and minister for one another. I think it's, I think it's easier for us to say, and maybe it's just us guys, to say, I'll take a bullet for someone. I'll die for them. Uh, maybe that's easier to say than saying, I will continually daily die to self and live for them and serve them. Well, husbands, that's what God calls you to do for your wives, isn't it? And that's what he's called us to do for one another, to serve one another, to give to one another, meeting all sorts of needs and the sacrifice of our time and our energy and our resources, the sacrifice of, of our comfort as we care for one another and and. I could give numerous examples of this in our congregation, and I'll, I will not do that because I'll fail to mention some or someone a deed of kindness, an act of kindness, but it is refreshing, isn't it? To see the body of Christ caring for one another in these many ways, uh, even in our spiritual well-being, forgiving, restoring that continual fellowship with one another. And, and that's what Paul is telling us in, in Titus, in the book of Titus, when he tells the church at Crete, his, his last words to them at that letter is, and let people, our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. There again, tying fruitfulness with meeting the needs of others. It is encouraging the fact that we grow in our practice of good works and meeting needs. How do we love? We, we love by giving of ourselves and giving of ourselves in many ways that God uh, directs us. But we also love in a way that is seeking. Notice with me the next verse, 14 and 15 and 16. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask my father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, reading on this, uh, a sermon on this brought my mind back to this comforting thought. Jesus is not pointing the disciples to their choice of him. 
their fruitfulness and their uh, their endurance and even their perseverance isn't isn't tied in to that decision to follow him, but rather it is tied in to his decision to call them, choose them. That's what he says at the beginning of that. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And in all of this, God is is the divine source and the explanation of our love for him and our response to him. You didn't choose me, you 12. I know you left everything, but it was my choice of you that has kept you and stayed you. And believer, this morning, that is your comfort. Uh, that, that rest in God and his love to you. I know, beloved, that you've been loved by God, he tells the Thessalonian church. And that's what we see in the Christian faith. But notice he says this choice was that they would bear fruit. And they would bear fruit. Now fruit could have a variety of understanding to it, uh, as we have said before. But I think Carson is right, one New Testament theologian, who said this, the fruit, in short, is new converts. Jesus is sending the disciples out into the world to preach the gospel to bring the kingdom of God to the nations and in so doing that many would turn and be healed uh, and be saved. Carson notes it this way, and I think it's worth quoting him. This is simultaneously, speaking about the love of God, Uh, and loving for others. This is simultaneously a mandate to Christ's followers as a summons to those who do not yet know him. And what he's saying here is that this love of God on display in the church and the gospel message of God's love is an invitation. It's a summons as they see that love uh, to come and know him. That is why the union of love that joins believers with Jesus can never become a comfortable, exclusivic, huddle that only they can share what is he saying he said that, that we're not just walling off the world allowed us and just kind of me and my four no more rather it is a unique union an extension of the union of the godhead but it is very nature it is a union and intimacy by which the necessity of its own constitution seeks to bring others into its orb And you say, well, I didn't understand any of that. Basically what he's saying is that that love of God, that love for one another, as we testify to to, uh, the world that we are in him and he is in us, it is by its very nature an invitation for others to come and share. As we abide in Christ, it is not sufficient enough that we just abide in him and bring refreshment to one another in the body of Christ. That is true and it happens, but that refreshment spills out into the world to refresh others so that they may come and know him. And, and that's at the very beginning in the Old Testament, isn't it? When God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, when he says, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He means through Christ, that seed that will come from Abraham, through Christ all the families of the earth will be blessed. Or Psalm 67 that Ed shared with us on Wednesday night, where the psalmist proclaiming this, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. 
for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. So what is he saying? That's why we share the gospel. Pray and have a desire for others to come to know the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus. That they may enjoy that same deep fellowship with him, that same embrace and that same life in them, redeeming, restoring, recovering life that flows through him in themselves. Do you have a desire to see people to come to know that kind of love? A desire to see those who are lost around you to come to know him? Or are you satisfied in your Christian bubble? And have little burden over many who run across your path without ever knowing Christ Jesus. When is the last time, and I say this, not not just to get you, but a reminder to my own self. When is the last time you wept over someone's soul? I felt the weight of, of life and death that hangs in the balance as they have rejected God. Christian, knowing the love of God compels us. Knowing the fear of the Lord compels us. And his, it compels us not only to want to share and dwell and meet the needs of, of the body of Christ, but to, to see others come to know him and, and come to be in him. How much more or how much is that not stirred up in us or as we abide and dwell in his love? And how can you abide and dwell in a, in a love that is for sinners in the midst of their sinning to forgive them of their sin and make them right with God and knowing that that was you? And as you dwell in that and, and grow in that and are amazed by that, are you not at least hopeful that others around you, others in your family, others that you're praying for could not also be captured by that kind of experience that kind of love i know something like this always makes you feel bad and wants you to, you know you should go out and witness more I, i'm not saying that at all i'm just saying that in this i see those two expressions of the love of god that he is saying that as we abide in him and flow out that care of others but not only that care of others but that invitation that desire to see more come to faith in christ I think it was Spurgeon who once said, God saved the elect and elect some more. Now, I don't know where you get with that and what you think about that, but, but it showed a desire to see people to come to know Christ. In church, we should be restless. We should be burdened, joyful, yes, but burdened that there are many around us that don't have that same hope. Maybe we need to be troubled just as much as those who are without the hope sometimes out of our sleep. Third thing I want you to notice here, not only that refreshment towards others, abiding in his love, that refreshment towards others, but but that blessing and refreshment towards ourselves. Notice back with me, verse number 11. Our abiding in God's love is fruitful ministry to others. It's also good for us. It's also a blessing and refreshment to us. Jesus gives us two promises in this passage. I see two promises given to us. Verse number 15, the first of which is verse number 11. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Your abiding in the love of God 
and dwelling and obedient to the commands of God is, is the means by which your joy is running over. Your joy is full. That's what he's saying here. He's already promised us his very peace that he had. And now he's saying that this is the, this is the source of your joy. This is where joy in your life is to come from. I'm going to give it to you. Doesn't that take your minds back to Psalms 23 when he says, my cup runs over? Do you have joy this morning? Not a silliness. Uh, and sometimes what we speak of, of happiness, which is based upon circumstances, but a deep confidence in the, in the love of God for you and your relationship to him. Do you have joy this morning that your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life? A study we're doing on Friday mornings, a men's Bible study, uh, brought up that section in Luke chapter number 10 where his disciples come back and they're all rejoicing because demons, uh, ob- in, in the name of Jesus, oh, they obey him. And so they're excited, they're happy, and Jesus says, that's not to be the source of your joy and rejoicing. But rejoice in this, that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. How often God turns our focus on those things that are temporary and fleeting to those things which are eternal and remain. That experience of joy, his very joy that he gives to us. You see that connection with obedience? How do you have joy as a Christian? Well, you walk in obedience. You walk in harmony with God and his will and his word. And when we're out of step with God, when we walk in disobedience, what happens? God removes that because he chastens us. And like David, as he cries out and he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. So he removes that joy because of our disobedience so that we might learn to walk in fellowship and harmony with him. But notice what he says here, just obedience in general. That joy, that commandment, that obedience that he calls for is love. If you're selfish, and you don't have to admit to me if you are, I know we all battle with that, right, if we're honest. And you live for yourself, and that's all that is in your focus 24-7, you will not have the joy of the Lord. You will not have... You will not experience the joy that God has meant for you to experience in this life. In fact, some of the most miserable people in this world are those who are the most self-centered. Those who don't care about others around them. They're so fixated on themselves. And yet those who love others or abiding in Christ's love are those who are joyful. And that's what Jesus is promising to us. And We could say it this way. You want a joyful church? How many of you want a joyful church? How do you get that? Be a loving church. And you find a loving church or a culture where uh, it matches what Jesus is instructing us here. It will be a joyful place. A joyful place. The second gift Jesus gives to us is fruitful, prayerful ministry. Notice again what he says here in verse number 15. Or at the end of 16. Uh, he's appointed them that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask in my father's name or ask in the father in my name, he may give it to you. He may give it to you. He's saying that he, God answers prayer. 
fruitful praying is missional praying. That's the way I kind of look at it here. That as you're obeying the will of God, walking in fellowship with God, you're abiding in his love and loving others in that kind of missional carrying for others way. Uh, that God is answering your prayers because your prayers are not selfish. They're not self-centered. You're caring for one another. But it also reminds me as a church, and I know I talked about Wednesday night. It reminds me as a church uh, to ask you, as I ask my own self, how often do you find yourself praying for the activity of this place? Praying that God would use this church and this community to further the gospel not just here, but around the world. You pray that God would bless this gospel ministry and grow it and, and that he would meet the needs of the congregation, meet needs of missionaries. Are you actively praying for believing that prayer is, is fruitful? Do you believe that? Well, we should for every practical reason that I mention, and many more come often together to pray because we know. And I could say that again. We know it is not a waste of time. Do you believe that? God hears and answers. Not only does he give us joy, but we have that assurance that he hears us and he gives answers our prayers. Notice he comes back around to this command, doesn't he? These things I command you so that you love one another. He'll go on and speak of persecution and all these other things, but he comes back to this knowing the love of God, experiencing it, enjoying it, growing in it, refreshing others, and finding joy ourselves. Many of you are testimonies to that, examples. And some of you may be wondering, how do I know how to serve one another? How do I grow in this area of loving one another? And I would say, find people that are doing it and watch them. It is something that we learn. And for those of you here this morning, if you don't know the love of God, I'd love to take the word of God and, and show you more how you can know his love found in Christ. You can find me after the service. I'll be meandering through the crowd somewhere or one of the ushers handing out a bulletin. There is nothing like the love of God found in Christ Jesus, is there? In church, he says that we're to abide in it. And how do you abide in it? By actively loving one another. Bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning that we gather together. Thank you for your goodness to us. Pray that you would encourage us and... Help us as we meditate on what you have said this morning. Father, I pray that you would, uh, you would not only let your love be manifested in our actions and deeds towards one another. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, again, even as we prepare for tonight in communion, fill our minds and hearts with that glorious reminder of that love on display. In Jesus' name, amen.